Hello and welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Feldman, uh, but I'm not your only host today. Don, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jacob. How about you? I'm doing excellent. So yeah, we, we thought now would be the, the perfect time to do our first co-hosted show. We both published some stories recently and kind of going to try to do these time to time just to check in me and you on, on how the Sunday Long Read in general is going, what's going on with us personally, you know, uh, opinions on, on whatever we may be trying to get off our chest. And, and so we th- I think it uh, makes the most sense to start today, Don, with, with your most recent story, a big one on the, on the backroom discussions that took place in NFL headquarters last week about how the league and its teams should move forward when it comes to national anthem demonstrations. But uh, before we, we kind of get into the details of, of that story and how it came about, I kind of have a slightly larger question. You know, I think this was your first story since April. So I want to ask uh, for the people who are listening, and I'm sure are curious, can you explain, you know, what exactly your, your job is? <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, I'm a long form investigative reporter for ESPN. And uh, this story that uh, was published on Sunday was not the story I've been working on. And it's actually a couple of projects that I've been juggling since April. This is a story that came up very suddenly. Um, but my job at ESPN is to investigate um, anything and everything in the sports world and do pieces for ESPN's magazine and for ESPN.com. So the projects that I spent the summer, last part of the spring and the summer and the early part of the fall on, I'm still working on. One is with my colleague Seth Wickersham, who I wrote the story with on Sunday. And then there's another piece that I'm doing uh, on my own, and I'm hoping uh, readers will see them sooner rather than later. They're getting close. So, so ha- as those big projects are, are, are kind of moving through the process, how how do you get mobilized, you know, on something like this, where, where I imagine, you know, at some point early last week, people say, you know, this is a huge story that, that involves some of the sources you have. Let's see you jump on it. That's really what happened. It was really fortuitous that the NFL was having uh, its committee meetings in New York last week. And Seth went Tuesday and began covering it. And simultaneously, I was checking in with sources, including Demora Smith, the head of the NFL Players Association. And by midday Wednesday, uh, Seth and I had decided we had enough material to put together a TikTok. This is such a critical moment in the history of the league and the way it's navigating this crisis involving the national anthem protests. My biggest question, I guess, is when, when you guys realize you have you know enough to do a story here. Is it such a big story, the biggest story, obviously, in sports, but not only in sports, probably you know in the country for several days there. How do you look at what other people are reporting? How do you try to figure out you know what you guys can add and, and bring new stuff and kind of move forward a, a story that so many people are writing about, covering, reporting on? Yeah, we had a, a pretty good sense early on that we had information that nobody was writing about. We, through our sources, had access to some of these closed-door meetings that were occurring at NFL headquarters that began Monday, went uh, to Tuesday and Wednesday. And so, as I said, by midday Wednesday, we had a pretty good indication that we had information um, that we felt pretty certain our competitors did not have access to. And so that's when we really decided to just crash the piece and do it as quickly as possible. And it really wasn't ready to be published until it was published. Um, We worked (laughs) all through the weekend and late Saturday night and even early Sunday morning before it was posted uh, a little before eight o'clock. We were still making last minute fact changes and uh, fact checks and and fixes. Um, Yeah. I'm curious to know what what the process is when compared to, you know, a magazine story that you guys kind of have planned out and 
you know, even just like on the fact-checking editing side, I mean, do you guys turn in a full draft and then let them take it from there, or, or is it edited and fact-checked in pieces? How does that come together? Um, well, anytime Seth and I work together, and we've done it now on a number of, of high-profile pieces, um, we sort of write in chapters. Uh, he'll take a chapter, I'll take a chapter, and then we shuttle the chapters back and forth until we're pleased with the first draft. And then that goes to our editor. Our editor is Chris Buckle a great editor at ESPN, and then he uh, works on it. But as he's working on that first draft, um, we're fact-checking ourselves. On this particular piece, we didn't have the magazine's fact-checkers do it, which has happened in previous pieces we've done. Um, but the but the process is just really fluid, and luckily Seth and I um, are comfortable enough with each other, know each other's sort of writing styles, that we try to write in the same voice, um, and we have an editor who's also very attuned to that. And, you know, through the weekend, um, Chris was actually at Virginia Tech, where his daughter is a freshman, and he, he attended the, the game on Saturday night, the Clemson-Virginia Tech game. So he was editing our piece while he was uh, at the football game. And um, which was kind of interesting. And uh, uh, but um, yeah, this these when you're when you're crashing and I know you know that and I know a lot of our listeners who are journalists know it's uh, you know, you do the best you can under the circumstances to to produce a piece as quickly as possible, as thoroughly as possible. I think this story was almost 4000 words. So it was a quick turnaround with a lot of details. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of great support to get it done in time by have it published by Sunday morning. I'm curious, you know, just your your personal opinion, your educated opinion of how serious you think this issue is. I think it's as serious uh, and maybe even more serious than the concussion uh, issue um, in, in the sense of, you know, the, the NFL hmm. is it's navigating this one is really, really tricky. Um, It it certainly is on health and safety as well, but um, they've been very proactive in the way they've handled that in attempts to make the game safer. Um, There's still obviously a lot of very troubling questions hanging over um, the concussion issue and CTE and how fans are reacting to it. But this really gets to um, the politics of the game and the, the, the politicizing of the game, I think, really uh, is something that the NFL owners um, and the union and, and the players are struggling with how to navigate it. Um, I think they thought they were out of the woods uh, on the Colin Kaepernick kneeling issue. Uh, in week two, I think only six or seven players, I say only, but only six or seven players kneeled. And then until President Trump made those comments in Huntsville, Alabama, on September 22nd, uh, you know, we didn't, I think they thought that they had been past this issue. Um, but by saying what he said, and, you know, people seem to forget it wasn't just that President Trump said that he felt that owners should fire any son of a bitch who took a knee. He also said that the attempts to make the game safer had uh, actually made the game boring and it hurt the product. Um, so this is somebody that a lot of these owners support politically, uh, even have supported with their checkbook. Seven owners have given a million dollars to President Trump's inaugural committee. And yet he then turned the his gun sights on the league itself, on the product, hitting it in all of its uh, Achilles heels, uh, not just on the political side, but also on the health and safety side. And the fact that, you know, you had several hundred players either remaining in the locker room uh, on the weekend of week three or taking a knee or sitting down or protesting in some form or the other, 
you know, turns off millions of fans. Um, and it, it, it is a huge crisis and an issue that the NFL, like the concussion issue, I, I think is probably ill-equipped to handle. And that's what I think our story really uh, pulled the curtain back on and showed just the chaos that was occurring in those meeting rooms at, on Park Avenue last week. And, and also showed uh, that for the first time in a long time, the players themselves uh, had more power or had certainly had as an equal amount of power to the owners, uh, you know, something that, um, you know, we uh, have probably never seen um, in, in the history of the NFL. Yeah. And, and how about for you personally? I mean, you you covered uh, the Clintons, the Bushes. I mean, I bet you didn't expect to be, you know, wrote back into the political fray like this after moving to ESPN. That's true. I didn't think I would have to do any of this kind of uh, reporting uh, any longer. It was one of the appeals, actually, to leave The New York Times after 16 years and, and go write about sports. But, you know, that whole stick to sports thing um, it, it is clearly now kind of silly. Uh, you know, sports and politics uh, and culture have always been intertwined. And, um, you know, it's a it's a major part of, of the NFL story now because of what President Trump has said. So, yeah, there'll be certainly more, um, you know, political overtones to things that I'll be writing about and covering. Um, you know, I say, Jacob, a lot to friends that um, the preparation for the NFL in my career, I really got a, a good education for covering the NFL because the NFL is such a closed world when I was covering the Defense Department and the CIA and the White House uh, in the New York Times Washington Bureau, that was a really good preparation for covering the National Football League because it's a, it's a, it's a crazy closed society um, that's very, very difficult to find out information um, that's, that's new and that's revelatory. Um, but, I, but I had pretty good training in, in covering those other places. And, and does it make the other stories you're working on now seem small? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, one of the other stories I'm doing is is does involve the NFL, and it's somewhat related. So it doesn't necessarily feel as if that story is diminished by what I just did. Um, the second project um, doesn't have to do with the, the NFL. Uh, and maybe by comparison, you know, when you look at just how big this particular story is and will continue to be, um, it, it, it may feel that a little bit like that, but, um, you know, anything involved in the NFL is so, is so big and so important. I mean, it's the most popular sport in the United States by far. Uh, and what goes on in it, um, you know, behind closed doors, which is usually what I'm writing about is such a challenge to try to find out, uh, what really is happening and how decisions are really made and how power is exercised. That, uh, that, you know, it's it, it, it's a fantastic privilege as an investigative reporter to be given the time and resources to, to you know, look into a subject as, as difficult as the NFL is and as important as it is to sports fans. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, I think we had we had to open there given, you know, that was the most recent story you've written and, and how big of a story it has been. But, you know, not your only story in the news recently. Uh, have you had a chance to go watch the Battle of the Sexes movie yet? I have not, and I don't think I actually I'm going to see it. Uh, I think I'm going to pass on the Battle of the Sexes movie. Can, can you fill people in on your background as it relates to, to the Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs story? Yeah, four years ago, I wrote a story called The Matchmaker uh, that was uh, based really on a tip from a man I knew in Tampa, Florida named Hal Shaw. 
Hal Shaw, 40 years ago, had been, it sounds crazy to even say it, but he had been in a locker room at a country club in Tampa, Florida, late at night, and several men came into that locker room, and he recognized them as some of the most notorious mob bosses of the 20th century. And he overheard these men discussing a proposal that Bobby Riggs had brought to them to fix a match against Billie Jean King. Uh, he heard the men discuss the fact that Bobby Riggs owed them $100,000 in losing sports bets, and to erase that debt, he was going to set up a pair of exhibition matches, the first against Margaret Court, who was then the number one tennis player in the world, and then the second match would be against Billie Jean King. The men said that uh, Bobby Riggs was going to beat Margaret Court, uh, but then go in the tank against Billie Jean King. And um, uh, these mobsters were running uh, a huge national network of illegal bookmakers that would take uh, action on that particular match. And then I investigated it by talking to a lot of the old guard in tennis and very carefully studied the match. And it, it certainly looked as if Bobby Riggs was tanking when you really carefully watch the 1973 ABC broadcast of the match. And it was one of my favorite stories, Jacob, I've done in my career um, because it was just this great detective story of this iconic moment in American, in American sports. And uh, uh, the piece came out. I interviewed Billie Jean King for the piece. She, uh, of course, adamantly denied that a fix occurred. Um, she even said on camera to me that Bobby Riggs didn't hang around with mobsters. And I had to tell her on camera, actually, he did. Um, one, one of the guys that he hung around with and played golf with often uh, was a guy named Jackie the Lackey Cerrone, a mobster from Chicago. It's a good name. Yeah, it was a great name, a hitman who um, uh, he, some of his associates were actually recognized by Bobby Riggs's son, Larry, who said on the record that he saw some of these you know, mob wise guys coming out and visiting his father in the weeks leading up to the Battle of the Sexes match. And then there's all sorts of backstory things that occurred after the match with connections that Bobby continued to have to the mob that um, hadn't really been explored before that I reported in that piece. So um, uh, it got a lot of attention when the story was published. And uh, Lorne Kuehl, who is Bobby Riggs's best friend, also adamantly denied that the match was fixed. He said just that uh, Bobby Riggs didn't take Billie Jean King seriously. He didn't train at all for uh, the match. He trained relentlessly for Margaret Court, um, working out 10 to 12 hours a day, playing tennis nonstop, and then, of course, annihilated Margaret Court 6261 on Mother's Day. It was called the Mother's Day Massacre. And then, by all accounts, Bobby Riggs didn't train at all for Billie Jean King, which is also a very curious thing, particularly curious to Larry Riggs, his son, who, who was so angered by that and also suspicious by seeing these mob guys showing up uh, in uh, California pr prior to the Battle of the Sexes match where Bobby was staying in Los Angeles partying day and night that uh, Larry Riggs himself bet on Billie Jean King to win the Battle of the Sexes match. So that's a long way of describing the story, Jacob, but then, you know, as I, as I understand it from the, from the Battle of the Sexes movie, there's not a word in the film about any potential fix, of course. Um, and uh, in fact, I think they even have a scene where Bobby Riggs bets $15,000 on himself. Exactly, so, yeah, they so, do. Uh, so have you seen the movie? 
Yes, yes, yeah. I, I went and saw it uh, last Friday night, and and it it is interesting. They do um, kind of recount the way that Riggs didn't, you know, train at all. They have him, you know, popping various pills by the pool, and and in one of the odder scenes in the movie, they do have his son kind of refusing to show up to the match and watching it uh, in a hotel room, I guess. Um, and, but, but they never really explained. So, so I don't, you know, I, I don't, did you, did you hear from anybody, uh, you know, any, anybody working on the script or at any point, you know, in the research for the movie or anything like no. that? Um, well, what happened was when my piece was published in, uh, August of 2013, so that was four years ago, I had seven or eight, uh, movie producers, film production companies all vying for the rights to my story. And I ended up optioning the story to Peter Chernin. Um, and he actually developed a script. <laughs> a notable, notable name notable as well. Notable name, and he developed a script. Um, a script was written uh, based on my story, and um, Will Ferrell was attached to play Bobby Riggs. But once this particular project that Billie Jean King was associated with kind of got off the ground, it kind of beat us out of the gates. Um, the matchmaker movie sort of fell by the wayside and is now not going to be made. Now, the option is still available. The option with Peter Chernin expired. So if anybody's listening and they're interested uh, in it um, and to develop a movie, that would be great. Though I, I doubt it'll happen now. I think that, you know, this this is the uh, official officially sanctioned version uh, of the story. And uh, it's been made. And, and from what I understand, it has it's not doing that well at the box office, is it? Is that right? I, I haven't yeah, seen that. Yeah, I, I just happened to see that on Twitter this morning. I think mm-hmm. it, I think it grossed only a few million dollars over the weekend, which I think was disappointing. But what did you think of the movie mm-hmm. overall? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was good. It, it's it's not cool, but uh, you know, Emma Stone is great, and and I I don't I only kind of knew the details through, through reading your story. I obviously wasn't you know around to see it firsthand, so you know I think they did a good job, and it, it really is kind of more about her personal life, um, and, and and it's interesting. It seems like the 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 people making the movie wanted to tell Billie Jean King's story and, and selling it as this battle of the sexes thing was probably a better way to have it do well at the box office. It's funny to hear that, that it didn't because, you know, Steve Carell is kind of thrown in there as, as uh, Riggs, obviously, um, you know, more so for comedic effect. And, and they do kind of hint at, at some of his backstory and, and his marriage, but it's not really uh, a consistent thread and it comes here and there. Um, but really, you know, the story focuses on Billie Jean King and, uh, more more of a biopic about her than anything else. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to pass on it. Um, I've had a couple of other friends who've seen it who have kind of a similar assessment of it that you just described. And uh, uh, it's, it's disappointing. I mean, I think a better story, and I'm, I'm obviously I'm biased, but a better story is one in which, uh, and I, I happen to think it's the truth, I can't prove that the match was fixed, um, but I... I make a pretty strong circumstantial case in the matchmaker that it that it was that certainly that Bobby Riggs tanked um, mm-hmm. in the way he played. I mean, this is a he was a dominant player even in his mid fifties. I mean, Margaret Court was the number one ranked women's tennis player in the world when he beat her six two six one just four months before the Battle of the Sexes against Billie Jean King. And when you watch that ABC broadcast, which I had the pleasure of doing. I mean, it was a, it was a privilege with commercials and everything, you know, with Howard Cosell at the microphone. Um, Mm -hmm. Bobby Riggs, who um, had an amazing service game, uh, missed about 50% of his first serves and he was double faulting even on um, some critical points in, 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 in where where the game was on the line. And, um, you know, 
Cosell was stunned, stunned by it. And some of the some of the shots just look comical. He barely gets the ball to the net. Well, in several instances, he doesn't get the ball to the net. And so the people in tennis who suspected that Riggs threw the match said that when they watched that, they believed that Bobby, that was Bobby's way of winking and nodding at them. Um, he, he was he was playing uh, so poorly compared to the way he normally played that people in the know would know that he was tanking it. And of course, setting aside the whole aspect of the gambling um, debt that he owed to the mob, that was the sort of central part of my story. The other incentive he could have had for tanking it was for a rematch. Um, if there had been a rematch with Billie Jean King, it would have been for a lot more money. Um, and there right. are some people that have speculated that simply that was his motive in not playing 100%. But Larry Riggs, his own son, believes a, a, a fix was was uh, certainly possible and maybe even likely. And Larry Riggs said to me after my story was published, he said the only two people in America that he knows of that believe a fix was impossible are Billie Jean King and Lorne Kuehl, Bobby Riggs's best friend. Hmm. Well, that says a lot. And you, you mentioned the ABC broadcast. Actually, the uh, the biggest discussion, you know, with, with my family who, who I saw the movie with was uh, the representation of Howard Cosell. I think that, you know, they used some of the archival footage and some CGI, you know, wizardry to, to recreate him, which, which is you know, probably one of the more notable aspects uh, or takeaways of the film experience if anyone does uh, go out and see it. And obviously, you know, I'd recommend everybody who does to, to, to read Don's story afterwards and and make up your own mind about, about what really happened oh, back that's, then. That's nice of you to say. So, Jacob, I'm going to take over here for a few minutes. I want to ask you a few questions now. Um, the right. first one I, I want to ask you about is the MMQB newsletter, which you just started um, with Peter King. And, you know, I know you through our project on the Sunday Long Read and know how amazing you are at putting newsletters <laughs> together, producing them, and envisioning the ways they should be done. Whose idea was the MMQB newsletter and how much of it is, is your project? How much of it is Peter's? How much of a collaboration is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, this, I, as far as I understand, this has been uh, something Peter, Peter King has wanted to do uh, for years now. He says, you know, since he started the site, I, you, know, I, you have to ask him. But um, so we, we kind of had the opportunity. Uh, he reached out to me in the spring as something we kind of been talking about maybe launching uh, around the draft or in the summer, we ultimately decided, you know, to do it kind of in this middle of the season when, you know, there'd be, uh, plenty of stuff. And, and as expected, there has been plenty of stuff, uh, to carry a daily newsletter on the NFL. So, um, it was his idea to start and, and kind of, um, a back and forth as far as, you know, the, the, the format of, you know, how much do we put on the top? How many stories do we link? How do we, you know, feature MMQB stories alongside, uh, stories from around the web. And that was, you know, a conversation we had to have with, uh, people, you know, across, several departments at SI, but, you know, I, th I think uh, it's worked out pretty well. So, so the way it works now is we, uh, I put up a daily story on the site, which looks like any other story from the back end, and then um, we're able to kind of go through and just take that URL and immediately turn it into a newsletter, which is awesome, you know, given my experience, you know, it probably takes, uh, you know, three hours on a good week if I'm really focused with, with the long read uh, on Saturday to, to turn it from, you know, Word doc into MailChimp doc. Um, so, so to watch the magic of just taking a URL and immediately turning it into a newsletter is, is something, but, but, it, but it's been a lot of fun so far. Yeah, and, and the actual, there's a lot of writing in it, or at least the assess, this sort of assessment that's done of the story of the, story of the day. That's, you, that's your writing. That's, that's your voice, right? 
Correct. Yeah. So so it's about we we're currently aiming for about a thousand words total, and so the way that breaks down is about four hundred, maybe a little less on the top, uh, a couple hundred words on what's going to be in the MMQB that day for our readers, and then uh, you know four hundred or so words on everything else going on around the web. So yeah, that that four hundred words. You know, I'm usually sitting down after dinner, kind of looking at. Uh, what's the big story? Uh, you know, I'll look at ESPN.com, look at SI.com, kind of look around, see what the big story. Look ahead a little bit if there, if there's a game the next day, or if uh, you know there's there's going to be a big NFL decision. You know, whether that's uh, you know a, a suspension appeal, as we've seen a couple times so far this season, or something like that. But yeah, and then I'll work with uh, my editor Matt Gagne and kind of go back and forth on on how to frame it, make sure no one else is writing that that current story, and and then uh, put it together. You have to get up early in the morning to to get it done. You said you think about you know the main piece at night, but is it all done in the evening, or do you have to do some of it early in the morning too? Uh, well, that depends how you, how you uh, where <laughs> evening becomes morning. Um, most of the time, it is done by about three a.m. Wow. Uh, so, so is that night that's, or is that no, morning? That's, it could be either one, right? Um, I mean, if you're not going to sleep <laughs> until three a.m., it's still at night, I guess. So if you take a couple yeah. hours nap, yeah. then that could be the morning if your day starts at three a.m. So. That's a long day, right. and that's on top of your your day job, right? Of of writing pieces for Sports Illustrated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you could call it a day job and a night job. Um, it, it's all. I mean, it's all intermingled. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of following the the stories from around the web throughout the traditional workday, you could say. And so by five o'clock, you know, a lot of that kind of bottom of the letter stuff is written. Um, and and yeah, you know, it, 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 I've actually found it's, it's been somewhat productive when I send in a draft of this to be edited by Matt, you know, at, at 11 or 12 at night, uh, you know, it takes, you know, an hour or whatever to, 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 for him to go through it and, and make it, make sure it all makes sense. But uh, I've actually, you know, tried to be a little more productive with that and using that, you know, some quiet writing time. It's kind of nice, you know, at night when there's nothing else going on and it's just, you know, you, you in a Word document. So I, th- I think there are, there are some, uh, some benefits to that non-traditional work schedule. But uh, fortunately, my, my editors on the magazine and the website have been extremely helpful and kind of making sure that that it works and that you know i'm able to make everybody happier just so our listeners understand something jacob is one of the hardest working people in journalism so he's got his day job now he's got the newsletter at night the mmqb newsletter and that's a daily newsletter five days a week and then on weekends then you have to produce the sunday long read you know you said it's three hours but it's still it's more than that because during the week, you're reading pieces, you're figuring out what your favorite story is going to be. I mean, I just know from from myself, it is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, you're just mm-hmm. you're constantly sort of thinking about it. Uh, you know, I, I don't think about it much during the day because I'm too busy, you know, doing my day <laughs> yeah. job. But at night, I, you know, I got the iPad there. I've got the game on, uh, but I am reading. Yeah, reading and thinking yeah, about absolutely. it. And it's... Um, you know, it's a lot of work. Um, so you and I met through the Sunday Long Read. I think some of our listeners know that. But I, I but for the ones who don't, I want to just tell the story. Uh, in 2014, I started uh, on Twitter every Sunday and sometimes on Saturday just putting out the four or five stories that week that I really liked. I was doing it during the week, but I'd start saving them, and I just started calling it the Saturday Long Read 1, Saturday Long Read 2, and then just put out three or four or five links of my favorite stories. And I did that throughout 2014 um, and into 2015. And um, I think that, was it the end of 2014, Jacob? End of 2014 is, is yeah, okay, when we so, got hooked up in, okay. in November, I believe. I think we're, we're coming up That's on right, three years, I believe. Three years. So at the end of 2014, um, 
a couple of friends had said to me, you know, you should think about starting a newsletter. And I just thought, no, it's just way too much work. Uh, it's, it's too much work just yeah. putting out tweets. Um, and, um, but I, I said that, and Jacob was following me. And at the time, I think you were a senior at Harvard. Is that right? So Jacob's Correct. a senior yes. at Harvard, and he says, well, if you need any help, um, you know, these tweets have been part of my journalism education. I'd love to help. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, one of the best decisions I think I've ever made, and it was a completely <laughs> spur of the moment, is I said, okay, I'll take you up on that. Let's let's get right some, some random person some, on the Internet that you've right, never met right, or some heard random of. person. I have no idea who you are. Uh, let's let's have a conversation. And remarkably, Jacob volunteered to basically be my partner on this project, which I think you'd agree, Jacob, has become kind of a labor of love for both of us. Um, you know, I, it's, yes. it, the the response we've gotten. So we started, we did a beta newsletter, I guess, in late November of mm -hmm. 2014. Correct. For about, yeah, a, for month. about a month. Yeah. And it was, if you go and look at them today, it looks nothing like the, <laughs> the sleek Sunday long read that drops in your inbox every Sunday morning. It was quite crude. But we... Very 2014, um, but we, but but a lot of the things that sort of have stuck, we did early on. We picked our favorites. I think we very early on started the our favorite lead of the week, favorite quotation of the week, and some of the other features. Um, but we just kept at it, and very quickly, I, I I don't remember exactly how many subscribers we got, but I remember we were really gratified within a couple of months of just the response not just the number of subscribers, but the open rate and then just the feedback we were getting. And that really, I think, put jet fuel in our tanks to just keep doing it and, and keep at it. I want to say, you know, kind of philosophically, when you, when you talk about kind of the name of our project and the way we think about putting it together, that I think a lot of people think of it as a list of long reads. But but to me, I think of it as kind of one long read. It's, you know, the Sunday long read. It's, it's kind of one package all together. And, and I think that's why we include you know, shorter stories, fun stories, you know, not your traditional 3,000 words. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately, I think the, the, the final package, when you put it together, if you were just to read our newsletter top to bottom, it would in itself be, you know, something like 4,000 words. So uh, it, it has uh, kind of developed legs of its own. Like you said, I think, you know, we've each had some good ideas. We each had some bad ideas that we've shot down for sure. Um, but 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 I'm happy with with how it's looking, and, and obviously you know I think both of us have have a bunch of ideas on, on where to take it. Yeah, from well. and I I think one of the more inspired ideas certainly uh, I've been teased a lot by my friends about this, and I'll, and I'll explain why in a second is our roster of contributing editors. Um, we have I think about up to about 55 um, fantastic journalists and 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 a handful of non-journalists. Um, I thought we were going to say non-fantastic <laughs> no, journalists. They're all—they're all—they're all fantastic. They're, they, but what's what's really cool about it is um, they bring their own sort of um, voice to the newsletter. Uh, I think it's a surprise for people sometimes when they open it and they see who's who's in charge. Um, the intros are always interesting to read, and um, you know we just we get, we bring different voices to it. Where I've been teased by people, particularly uh, my friends Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham who just um, uh, co-curated the newsletter a few weeks ago, is they're like, man, you got the greatest scam going ever. You know, you, you're the, you've become the long read guy and half the time you're on vacation. You know, you're, you're, you're off. But, yeah. but I mean, that's not... I'm still, I, for the record, that, I am still that, producing that, the newsletter on that, the weekends when we have the guests, for what it's worth. 
I'm not the genius right. you are, not yet at least. But even when I'm off in quotes, I'm still sending stories. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm right. managing You're managing, you're, you're guiding through I'm it for sure. I'm somewhat in the loop, though my <laughs> Friday and Saturday nights are certainly uh, more pleasurable. Um, and as you know, Jacob, I mean, just putting it together, um, you know, I joke about this too. You know, my wife on some Friday nights wants to divorce me because that's supposed to be our night to kind of hang out, go have dinner or whatever. And I've I got to do the long read. You know, it's kind of like got to make the donuts. Yeah. You know, I got to do the list. Um, <laughs> right. But it really, but it really is worth it. Um, the way I see it, I mean, you talked about philosophically about the title. Philosophically, the way I see the project is, you know, I've been a journalist now 30 years. Uh, I started in 1987 at the Miami Herald, and um, I've had a, a, a privileged career. I've been very lucky to work for the Herald, the New York Times, and now ESPN. And this is a way I know as a young reporter. Um, Nothing was greater than when I would get these notes when I worked at the Miami Herald from Dave Lawrence, the publisher. Uh, if mm. you had a piece that he liked, he'd do just a handwritten note, and they were called in the Herald newsroom the Dave Rave. And so if you got a Dave Rave, it cost Dave Lawrence nothing but maybe a minute of time. But as a 25-year-old kid, when I'd get that, that was the greatest. Uh, you know, recognition of our work in journalism is, you know, the coin of the realm. It's the greatest thing ever. And to me, that's really what the project's about. It's, it's, it's a way to salute and celebrate the best journalism at a time when journalism is really under attack in, a, in an unprecedented way, actually, in 2017. And there is so much fabulous journalism out there that what this newsletter does, I, I would hope, is put great work uh, in front of readers that might not find it. That's certainly a, one of the big um, missions of it, but also give a pat on the back to uh, the men and women who do great work uh, every day. And, and, it, and it means something to them. And I think you'd agree with me, Jacob, that's really gratifying is that being included now in the Sunday long read is something that young writers really um, cherish. It's something they really, you know, they, they, uh, they, they'll tell their friends about it. It's something that means something to them. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about the, those day raves, I still have a note. Uh, my, my first internship was at the Charlotte Observer, and I have a note from uh, one of the columnists there, Tom Sorensen, who, who kind of wrote me at the end of my internship and, you know, uh, you know said, said I did a good job on whatever feature story it was there at the end. And, you know, I still have that note. And so, yeah, the, the my favorite part is, you know, I, I love it when, when the readers get back to us and say how much they enjoy reading. But, you know, when it's one of the writers that, uh, you know, is a freelancer or, or working at a smaller uh, publication that, uh, sees their name uh, on the list and, and then reaches out that that's definitely a special feeling you know knowing that I'm kind of right there uh, in their shoes with them and so anything we can do you know the the, the fact that that some people kind of view this as, as you know a weekly awards or you know a, a, a moment of recognition really really is uh, pretty cool and you, you mentioned the the contributing getters I, I just wanted to give a special shout out to to three you know Jody Jack and Tim who, who contribute every single week and really I think kind of turn what, what could just be a list of links in, into something with, with some, yeah, some characters and culture. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Jack Schaefer, um, very early on, I think it might have even been for the first newsletter or the second newsletter, uh, I had the idea to do a classic pick. And I asked, I thought it was going to be sort of a rotating um, part of the newsletter. And I asked Jack to do the first one. And Jack very quickly said, well, why can't I do all of them? I mean, you know, he just he just volunteered for this, you know, unpaid pain in the neck job. You know, he hears from me every Friday or Saturday, uh, you know, need another classic for the next newsletter. But but he's been fantastic. And um, so many readers have given me great feedback about Jack's 
not only his selections, but just how smart his uh, write-ups are every week about about some of the best journalism that's ever been published. Jody has brought you know so much. I mean, you're you're more of a podcast guy, Jacob, than I am. Um, but I'm getting more and more into it, and and a big part of it is uh, thanks to Jody's mm-hmm. recommendations, and a, they've been they've been awesome. Yeah, those and, have been You awesome. know, he was our first guest on the SLR pod and and he was fantastic and his support has really meant a lot and the advice he's given us has really been great. Uh, And of course, Tim, um, you know, Tim is somebody who I met through my wife. Um, My wife, Lizette Alvarez uh, from the New York Times, uh, got to know Tim and Tim would send her on occasion, you know, these great limericks and rhymes and always based on the news. And so, it was Lizette's idea to, to, you know, hey, reach out to Tim. Maybe he would be interested. And he's been great. And he's brought uh, an, another dimension to it, mm-hmm. too. But we should also say, you know, we're looking for any ideas. If you're if you're this far along in this podcast now, we've been at the 45-minute mark, then you <laughs> are uh, definitely a fan of the newsletter. And we'd love to hear from you. Send your ideas and uh, uh, about anything that you'd like to see or something you'd like to see less of. I wanted to, I wanted to ask one other question before we sign off, Jacob, and that is the very controversial topic of the number of stories. So the complaint I get the most often from uh, readers is there are too many stories. Why don't you just do five? Why don't you just do three? Why don't you just do 10? And mm-hmm. I'm going to give my answer first. And actually, let's hear your answer first. What, do you, okay. what, what, what is your explanation of people? I'm sure you've heard it too, when they say, hey, I want, you know, less is more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think depending on who the person is, I have a couple answers. My first answer would be we could give you 50 if you wanted every week, I think. Um, so we're, we're doing a lot of work. It's hard as it is to pare it down to 15. I, mean, I think we have, we both cut out some stories that we really like from, from some writers that we really like every week. And I know you, you hear from friends, I hear from friends, you know, that want to see their stories in. And a lot of times, you know, you just can't make it happen because we're trying to keep this list as short as we can. So 15 is, we're doing a lot of cutting to get there. I think the second thing I would say is that you know, we, we launched this newsletter almost three years ago, so it's been a while, but there are other people uh, that do great lists of three or five or one uh, every week. And, and so if that's kind of what you're looking for, I think this isn't going to be uh, the newsletter for you. I think this is for we're going to try to give you a great business story. We're going to try to give you a great sports story. We're going to try to give you a great local story, a great drugs and crime story, foreign affairs. I mean, I think you, we want to have that variety, and we also want uh, to – show you stories that you might not have seen so if you are someone that reads the wall street journal and reads the business news hopefully one of the sports stories or one of the stories on culture on on film will 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 grab you and and kind of take you to a publication you haven't heard of or something like that and that's i think a huge part of when i'm putting my list together is like you know a new york times or new yorker story will be in there but i'm going to try to give preference to to something that that's a little further off the beaten track and and that's how i think we end up with, with going from 10 to 15 is by including those stories that might not make other people's lists I, I can't add anything else except to say how difficult it is to keep it to 15, just to just to echo what you said. Um, I there's there's many pieces, you know, because it, we're we're partially crowdsourced and we get a lot of recommendations every week. And there's there's a fair number of the crowdsourced pieces that make it. So I want to keep people doing that. But then there's quite a few that just don't. And 
um, like you said, we could do 50 or we could do 25. And, and the goal is for this to be sort of almost like a Sunday newspaper for you and, you know, you know, or a magazine, yeah, and, or magazine and give yeah. you, um, you know, a whole bunch of different types of stories, as you said. And, you know, you and I read, I mean, it, it does tilt some weeks to sports because that's the worlds we're in and we're reading more mm-hmm. of those kinds of pieces. But <laughs> right. um, we do try to do business pieces, cultural pieces, um, you know, all sorts of different stories, investigative pieces, um, really just the best things that, that have, you know, crossed the transom. I do get the complaints, so at least one complaint every Sunday from a friend who said, how could you miss this particular story? What were you guys thinking? And almost every time, I just didn't know about it. And you didn't know about it. And I and, and I so I always turn it around on the friend and say, hey, it's your fault. You didn't tell me about it. You know, tell tell me about right, it. Exactly. Tell me when you and the more <laughs> I say that actually, the more, you know, the Sunday long read uh, email address gets filled with stuff, which is good, which also makes our jobs easier. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. The, the, the more, the better for sure. Um, and, and now I'm sure we're going to hear from people who want this podcast to be kept at 30 minutes. <laughs> we're going right. to come up with a new answer for those people. All right. Well, this was fun, Jacob. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll do it again soon. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening to our third episode of the Sunday Long Read pod. We are going to be back soon. We've got Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham in the next week or two are going to join us as well as some other uh, great writers and guests. So uh, stick around. Thanks for listening.